You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. It's good to be here. It's good to see your faces. So good to see your faces. I'm not sure why that's popping. Oh, maybe it was that. Good, good, good. <laughs> so we have um, been going through the gospel story, and this morning I get to bring the word of the gospel story to you, and we're going to be in Exodus, the book of Exodus, and we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 today. Exodus is a book about redemption, and it's about deliverance, and in this gospel story, we're going to see through the book of Exodus how God uses the deserts, the hardships, the troubles as an incubator of growth. So in this story and how the Old Testament and the New Testament show us who the Messiah, our coming Messiah is, gives us these pictures of what Jesus is doing and is going to do. In this story, we meet Jesus through the beloved son, Moses. The life and the attributes of Moses are a foreshadowing of Jesus. So I'm going to read this morning um, the first 10 verses, and then we'll talk about that. So Exodus 1, 1 through 10. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with his father, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. In this story, we see that the Israelites are in Egypt, and they're being um, suppressed and oppressed, and everyone desires freedom. Abraham, the father of um, all of these Israelites, had the promise that his descendants would flourish in the land God had given them. Okay. Okay, so Abraham had the promise that his descendants, and this book is really about God keeping his promises. We're going to see it over and over and over. Um, Abraham had the promise that his descendants would flourish in the land God gave them. We see in Genesis 12, 7, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. In Genesis 15, 5, it says, look up in the heavens and count the stars if you can. Your descendants will be like that, too many to count. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are 
the descendants, they have come to Egypt. But now, 350 years later, we have the book of Exodus. So where Genesis ended with uh, Joseph being in charge, and we heard the story of um, all of how he saved Egypt and the surrounding countries, 300 ye 350 years later, we have Exodus, and Joseph is dead. Joseph was this remarkable great-grandson of Abraham who saved Egypt and the world. And God spoke to jo Joseph, as we know, through dreams. He was a dreamer, and Joseph listened, and he was a man of wisdom. He was a man of innovation that lifted those things, lifted him to a high and honored position in Egypt. But eventually, Joseph died. And the status that his family enjoyed in Egypt died with him. His father and his brothers are all gone. The pharaohs of that era are dead. But the descendants, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are in Egypt. This tribe now of 70 that started out as about 70 of this family are now a tribe of millions. They basically doubled every 30 years. And it's a pure bloodline. It turned out that Egypt was the perfect incubator of growth. Egypt was so, the Egyptians were so racially biased and had such an entrenched system of racial separation that Israel could grow there over several centuries without ever being assimilated which meant the Egyptians didn't intermarry with the Israelites. And the Israelites never adopted the customs and the cultures and the gods of Egypt. They stayed, they stayed true to their faith and to God. Isn't it interesting how God uses deserts, hardship, and trouble as an incubator of growth? They were surviving and thriving in enemy territory. And God used this to prepare his people. This huge obstacle didn't prevent them from, what, from who God called them to be. It was this very obstacle that prepared them to be the people God meant them to be. And I think we can relate to that. Or we ought to, because we all face obstacles in our life. We all face hardships and deserts and trouble in our life. And this is what James says about those things. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. <laughs> we thought the last two and a half years was just trouble. We just thought it was plain old trouble. But what it, but what it really was, it was also an incubator for us to grow. It's the very thing that was refining me. It was the very thing that was testing our faith and ultimately making me more like Jesus. I wish I could say that I went through it without a lot of bumps in the road, 
but still he was working in us. The reason that they're in Egypt is because that is where they could grow and flourish, and they did. The 70 direct descendants are now, 350 years later, they've grown to be two or three million people. But Joseph died, and nobody remembers him. Nobody can remember who jo Joseph did, who, who he was and what he did. It's like, Joseph who? The scripture says, a new, came, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. They forgot the guy who saved their entire nation and surrounding nations from death by famine. How do you forget that? I'm reading this and I'm thinking, how do you really forget that? The way we forget it is time. I've thought, for instance, us, you know, 350 years ago from 2022 was 1672. And I thought, I have no idea what was happening in 1672. My husband probably does because he's a history buff. But, <laughs> but I wanted to put it into perspective. Who, and I thought, well, who was the greatest leader of the world in 1670s? And I had no idea. Does anybody know that answer? So I Googled it. And it was Louis XIV, also known as Louis the Great. He was the king of France from 1643 until his death in 1715. His reign of 72 years was the longest recorded of any monarch of a sovereign country in history. And yet, we don't know who it was. And so, 350 years after the leadership of Joseph, no one could remember him, and the Israelites grew well over a million, and now they're a threat to, to the Egyptians. They were slaves. So let's keep reading. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Python and Ramesses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. The ancient Egyptians were infamous for their proud sense of racial superiority towards all other people, but especially right now to the Israelites. And now they're afraid of this strong minority group which looked like it would, it's not going to stay a minority very long because affliction could not stop them. How do we take this Old Testament story and apply it to our lives? I don't think it's very hard. I know it's not hard for me. The relevancy and the application of affliction and how do we grow in affliction is found in our Redeemer 
and deliver Jesus Christ. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Doesn't matter what we face. He is for us. The Egyptians could hurt them, but they could not defeat them. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. This was God's purpose for Israel's time in Egypt. It was in this place that they rapidly grew to a mighty nation. The growth in the face of affliction has constantly been the story of God's people. Look through the Bible. Look through history. Throughout all ages, the more they are afflicted, the more they grow. And I thought about that. When faced with affliction, when faced with hardship and trouble, and I don't grow, I have missed an opportunity. The Christian writer Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Exodus 15 through 22. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave the order to the Hebrew midwives, Shafara and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They followed the boys. Uh, they allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and have babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy in the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. I'm not surprised that the Israelite women were more vigorous. They worked so hard. They were healthy. <laughs> the midwives, though, Shephara and Pua, their, name, their names actually mean beauty and splendor, and they obeyed God. The midwives bravely obeyed God. They probably feared Pharaoh because he was a ruthless man, and they feared the power that he held over them, but they feared God more. For them, the choice was clear. The civil government commanded something that was clearly against God's command. And the midwives did the only right thing. They obeyed God rather than men. And God blessed the efforts of these midwives. God's sovereignty really spared them. I wondered, how did they ever live after being confronted by Pharaoh for disobeying him. It was really the sovereignty of God. We see a leader who, who resumes the genocide on an impersonal basis. 
he orders all of his people to just throw all the boys in the Nile. God was working out his plan, but Pharaoh wants this tribe dead. The people multiplied, and they grew very mighty. Pharaoh said less, and God said more. Pharaoh said stop, and God said go. If the battle were just between Pharaoh and the people of Israel, Pharaoh would have clearly won. But the real battle included God. And in that equation, that changes everything. And that changes everything in our lives. Pharaoh's decreed, every son who is born you shall cast into the river. The very thing that every mother and father wait on bated breath to hear is the breath of a baby. That cry when he, when he or she is born. You're waiting to hear that cry, that whimper, that, that child to breathe was the very thing that was terrifying them. And Pharaoh wanted to snuff out their breath. The method Pharaoh commanded for the death of the male children of Israel became the divine provision for training the deliverer of Israel. In Genesis 50, 20, it says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for all good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. I love the Old Testament. I grew up in a home that didn't have a lot of boundaries, a lot of rules. And so I think the Old Testament directives were something that I just craved because it was so direct. It was like, do this and you'll be blessed. Do that and you'll be cursed. If you do this, you'll die. If you do this, you'll live. And so for me, it was like it was so clear cut. I loved it because somebody was actually telling us what to do. And, um, and for me growing up, it was like I wanted to tell my parents, come on, you guys can say no somewhere. And so I loved the Old Testament. The great theologian Augustine once said, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is not an inferior, graceless religion but a covenant of grace yearning for the completion with Jesus Christ. The God of grace has been fighting for us from the beginning, and we see it in these stories, this history of the Old Testament. God was always running into the fray with us so that through his people Israel, grace could extend to all nations through Jesus Christ. Jesus brought the completion and the perfection of God's covenant and his love to us, every one of us, and we see it in the Old Testament. We meet Jesus through this beloved son, Moses. The life, again, and the attributes that we see in Moses as you go through Exodus are a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. So let's look at Exodus chapter 2. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. 
She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. I want to pause there for a minute because baby Moses opened his eyes to an unfriendly world. He was born in a powerful nation, yet he was a foreigner to an oppressed race. And he was under a royal death sentence. And I think about baby Moses opening his eyes to an unfriendly world. There were many babies born during the pandemic, and we have a granddaughter who was born um, in 2020. And it was interesting because that there was a similarity in that parents kind of hid them away. Um, and I remember Ron and I going over to see her, and they were pretty sequestered in their home, and she hadn't seen a lot of other people besides her mom and dad and brother. So we walked in, and I remember the first couple times we walked in, and she'd be on the floor, and she'd all of a sudden she looked at us, and then she looked at, at her mom like, is it okay? People are here. And so <laughs> we don't have people here. And so I understand. And then to see that baby Moses was born in this unfriendly world, and he was a part of this oppressed race, and he was under a royal death sentence. But nevertheless, Moses had something special in his favor. He was a child of believing parents. And she hid him for three months. There's a natural parental instinct to hide and protect your baby from danger. But they did it also out of faith in God. We read in Hebrews 11.23, it says, It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. His mother laid the basket in the reeds by the river's bank. In a literal sense, she did exactly what Pharaoh told them to do. She put him in the river. However, she took care to put him in a waterproof basket and strategically floated him in the river. But even more... This was a great example of trusting what you hold most dear. And in this case, her child's welfare and his future. To trust him to God alone. When Moses' mother let go of the boat made of reeds and bulrushes, she gave up something precious. Trusting God would take care of him. And perhaps find a way to bring him back to her. By faith, 
Moses' mother put him in a basket and placed him in a river. She released her beloved son, trusting that God would take care of him. You know, repeatedly, I have been challenged through my life, but probably more so in the last couple years, what am I going to place in the basket? What do I hold most dear or most value or the most hurt? Do I trust that to put it in a basket and release that? I've been challenged and prompted by the Holy Spirit to release things that I hold so tightly. Friendships, hurt, disappointment, my children, my future, my position, my job, my ideals, even my opinions. Am I willing to put those in a basket and release them to God? My personal views on world matters. Am I willing to put those in a basket and say, God, I trust you with the future. I trust that you're a sovereign God. Can I put those in a basket and release them? What am I holding on to that is really, honestly, holding me back? What is it today, by faith, that you can put in a basket? And send it down the Nile. And trust God with the outcome. Exodus 2, 6 through 10. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess asked, replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me. The princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Wow, I read this story and I think, how beautiful, how terrifying, how providential. Moses is rescued from death. Not only is he rescued from death, but he's given back to his mother to nurse him and was compensated for it. And God arranged for him to be trained in the Hebrew faith by his mother in the early years. We meet Jesus through this beloved son, Moses. Because like Jesus, Moses' mother protected him in an unconventional way and in a hostile environment. Like Jesus, Moses was favored by God from birth, from the tribe of Levites. Moses was miraculous pre miraculously preserved in childhood born during inside, just like Jesus was. They both had a season of preparation. He was mighty in words and deed. And like Jesus, Moses offered deliverance to Israel. Yes, he was just a man. He was just a human being. He was not a God. He wasn't 
a supernatural person, but God used him. And it showed, showing us through the Old Testament how God was making a way. He was rejected with spite, like Jesus, and rejected in their right to be prince and a judge over Israel. What intended to tear them apart, God intended to set them apart. Just like us, what intended to tear us apart, God intends us, intended it to set us apart. And in these days, these trying days of war and uncertainty, I want to come back to James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God's message to Moses was, I choose you. God's message to us is, I choose you. I'm choosing you. I want to set you apart. I want to, I want to give you a future and a hope. In a minute, there's going to be a prayer team up here. And by all means, if you have anything that you'd like someone to partner with you in prayer, please come up. And again, I want to challenge you this morning, this, the proverbial basket. Put, what is it that you're holding on to that God is saying, would you release that? Because you can trust me. You can trust me. Release it in the basket and let it go. God is faithful. He's good. He's, he has made a way for us. So this morning, um, I want to pray. And would you stand with me as I pray? And then, again, I want to encourage you, before you go, take a moment and say, wow, this is something I'm holding on to that's holding me back. Put it in the basket. Put it in that proverbial basket and let it go. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that you make a way for us, that we're, when we're in the desert, when we feel like we're enslaved in hardship, mistreated, Lord Jesus, those are those moments that you're going to grow us up. Thank you for growing us up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Old Testament that leads us to salvation. Jesus, thank you for this day. In your precious name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.